Good morning. It was great to see all those folks in the choir this morning, wasn't it? First hour, uh, Tim had said, if you see any unusual faces up, up front, so I, he changed it this time because I called him on it, you know, because one of those faces was my daughter, so I just, you know, I thought, um, no, it was great. And uh, yeah, I would echo his, uh, his uh, invitation. It's just a great way to be a blessing to the rest of us, so if you have a desire to do that this month, please do. Before I begin this morning, I wanted to first extend uh, my gratitude to God for you. Um, you know, at the beginning of this year, we decided as youth ministry, we weren't going to uh, hound you with lots of fundraisers all year, but just let you know of the needs when camps would arise and, and just ask that if the Lord put it on your heart to, to give. And you gave generously. We appreciate that. In fact, more money was given toward camp scholarships this year than, than any since I've been here about eight years. And so... Thank you for your generosity. It allowed many children to go to camp that may not have otherwise been able to, and definitely they were impacted for the gospel. So we appreciate that. In fact, uh, they're still being impacted. We have a a small team of about 8 to 10 kids up in Challenge, California, uh, north of Sacramento. They're serving a church there. Mike McCune, uh, Mike and Sarah are up there. They were part of Calvary for a time, and and, uh, this team's serving up there and helping with the VBS. Uh, doing door-to-door evangelism, serving some of the older saints that are there uh, in, the, in the small community. So uh, we appreciate that, just the giving that you've been able to provide uh, for them. And before we uh, move to the message this morning, I'd like to go ahead and, and pray again. Lord, you are abundantly gracious to us and provide for us in so many ways. And we appreciate that, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for just how you uh, provided for uh, camp and the uh, Ability for many kids to go. I just appreciate that, Lord. And pray for the team that's up in challenge right now, God, that you would use them these last couple of days. They'll be coming home tomorrow. I pray to God that today would be a time of encouragement for them, that they would continue to encourage the saints up there, and that you would use this time to stretch the young people that have gone and give them a safe journey home. May you bless them in that way. And pray, Lord, now as your word is proclaimed, that you would bless your word and Allow me, Lord, to be clear and accurate, Lord, to preach with conviction. We thank you for your truth and for your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I did bring up camps. Uh, I've been involved in a number of them over the nearly eight years that I've been here. Um, They've given me some wonderful opportunities to spend time with your kids, um, spend time with your teenagers. I've had many conversations, discussions in small groups or one-on-one uh, with them. And, you know, a- after every camp, I, I go away from it um, most of the time with a burden. Not just a burden for the kids, but a burden for you dads. You know, I, I talk to them and and we they share some of their struggles. And I ask them often, you know, have you talked to your dad about this? And, and many times they say no. They tell me of their lack of interaction with their fathers and how they don't have much time to pray with their dads or receive instruction from them. And, you know, many of them tell me their, their dads are, are pretty busy. Uh, they tell me that they're hard to talk to. Sometimes their dads seem disinterested or distracted, that a lot of times they don't receive encouragement from their fathers but lectures. Um, sometimes they're just their dads are caught up in other things. And, you know, what really burdens me about that is that I hear in the voices of these kids a desire, an earnest desire to have that relationship with their fathers. And, and each camp, it just um, it strikes me that, that there's a great need there. And they should desire that time with, with you dads because you have a profound impact on their lives. We've, I'm sure you're aware of the many studies that have been done that, that show the impact of fathers, particularly the absence of fathers in the home. One such study that was done about 10 years ago showed that over two-thirds of all high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. 90% of all runaway children come from homes without a dad. Three-quarters of all adolescent patients in drug rehabs are from fatherless homes. Two-thirds of youth suicides. Nearly 9 in 10 youth are in prison are from homes without dads. Higher rates of unwed pregnancy occur among young women from fatherless homes, and there's a greater struggle with homosexuality for young men and women who come from homes without dads or with absent dads. These are some alarming consequences, and there are many more. Even Gloria Steinem, a leader of the early feminist movement who very anti-biblical in her views of marriage, even she 
sees the problem and the importance of dads when she said, most American children suffer too much mother and too little father. On that score, she's right. Dads have been designed by God to lead in their homes, not as kings, not as distant dictators or decision makers, but as caring shepherds. And because of this, men have a target on their backs. You know, I believe, and it's my opinion, that, that after false doctrine, one of Satan's biggest strategies is to attack men, particularly young men, and to distract them away from being spiritual leaders in their home or even desiring that. I mean, think about this a minute. What would you say are among the greatest problems or struggles or issues, moral issues in our culture? What are they? And I would, I would say that they're lust, loot, and leisure. Those are among the biggest things I think American culture struggles with. Do you think that's a coincidence? Because those are the very same things that are among the greatest struggles for men. Immorality, money, achievement, materialism, exorbitant time spent on sports or leisure or games or hobbies. And Satan has been extremely effective in using them to distract men away from cultivating and becoming spiritual leaders and godly shepherds in their homes. Men, it's time for us to take back that ground that Satan has stolen from us, that he's stolen from our families. We need to be men that are in pursuit of God. And Psalm 128 shows that in that pursuit, there is great and tremendous blessing, overflowing blessing. And it's that blessing that I want to turn our attention to as we look at Psalm 128 this morning so that you will learn the blessing of being a godly man. Psalm 128 is a song of ascents. Um, that's part of a, a hymn book that was a collection of 15 psalms from 120 to 134 that were sung on the way to Jerusalem by the pilgrims there for the three annual feasts. They were called the Song of Ascents because to get up to Jerusalem, you literally have to go up a hill. It's about an elevation of a half mile above ground. And you would sing these songs together and they, they were uh, focused on the worship of God. Their themes related to the temple, to Israel, to families. In fact, Psalm 128 is one of the family songs that has its sister song in Psalm 127. Both of these would be sung one after the other as you were on your journey up to Jerusalem. What I want you to do this morning before we read it is just picture yourself there. You're part of the entourage. You're traveling to Jerusalem. Let's say it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You're, you're with your family. You're with, uh, among other families that are with you, traveling in a large group for protection. And you're there, you've got your, your toddler on your shoulders, your, your young boy is holding your right hand, and, and on your left is your wife with a, with a baby, and you've got your older kids in the back pulling the carts, because they always get the rotten jobs, right? So things haven't changed 2,000 years. They're still back there trudging along with the supplies. And just picture yourself in that scene, and you're, you're looking around at you, and you're reflecting as these songs are sung, and you're, you're thinking maybe about the, the joy of having a family and God blessing you in that way, and, and also maybe a little bit sobered by the thought that God has given you a great responsibility. And it's as you're thinking about these things, the words of this psalm ring out. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. When you shall eat the fruit of your hands, you will be happy, and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And as you sing this song with everyone else, you... We don't know the author, but there's something that profoundly strikes you. Blessing is the key theme that drives this psalm, right? I mean, it's repeated several times. Verse 1, how blessed is everyone. Verse 4, for thus shall the man be blessed. Verse 5, may the Lord bless you. And not only that, there's several other additional words that have the idea of blessing with happy, well, prosperity, peace. So let's look closely at this psalm and see what it is that we can learn and blessings of being a godly man, blessings of being a man who fears God. And the very first verse says the declared blessing. He says there again, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his way. And blessed here has the idea you can translate as, oh, the happiness of, oh, the joy in. We hear this word blessing thrown out a lot today, don't we? 
especially on uh, TV preachers. They talk a lot about experiencing the blessing or uh, being blessed by God. But you know what? Most of the time they're talking about material things, aren't they? Wealth, food, prosperity, health. But like Inigo Montoya said to Vicini in Princess Bride, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Forgive the accent. It's poor, but... But that's the idea, you know, the world and even American Christian culture sees blessing as happiness derived from my possessions, my experiences, my circumstances. But the biblical concept of blessing goes much deeper than that, doesn't it? It's the idea of being truly fulfilled, of being truly satisfied, of being rich and happy, full of peace. It's not so much the, the, the outward condition, but it's the inward prosperity the Bible often talks about. Steve Lawson said, Happiness is determined not by where your body is, but by where your heart is. Not by your external circumstances, but by your internal contentment. Not by your finances or fame, but by your faith. And John Piper, he describes ultimate blessing as, as not found in the gifts, but in the giver. Yes, we are to enjoy His gifts. And God loves to give them. But they aren't to be a, a, a means to that. A not, not, they're not the end of fulfillment, right? In fact, Piper said in his book, God is the Gospel, the challenge is to walk a fine line between belittling the gifts of God and making the gifts of God into God. It's the line between God-cherishing gratitude and gift-cherishing idolatry. All the gifts of God are given for the sake of revealing more of God's glory so that the proper use of them is to rest our affections not on them, but through them on God alone. I like how he says that. In other words, supreme blessing is not found in what I have in life, but who I have in life. We see this in the life of Habakkuk. Listen to what he says in Habakkuk 3.17. Though the fig tree should blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Did you hear that? He said, no, no matter if everything's terrible around me, I'm still going to exult in God. I'm going to find my satisfaction and glory in Him. That is the kind of blessing that God speaks of. It's that inner peace, right? Inner contentment. It's a settled joy. So the burning question then, then has to be, well, how do I get that? <laughs> How do I get in on this blessing action? What does that look like? Well, if you were to Google a secret of blessing, uh, you would find probably 38 million plus hits. You know, everyone's got an opinion on this one. Some would say, well, inner blessing, the secret of blessing is to show gratitude. It's to give unconditionally. Another will say it's, it's love. Another would say it's uh, being content, raising a family or fulfilling a bucket list. Televangelists will tell you to give your money to be blessed. But after Jack's message last week, we know what to say to that, don't we? How to be blessed really is no secret. In fact, the psalmist repeats it a couple of times here. He gives us the answer. He says in verse 1 right off the bat, How blessed is everyone who what? Preach to me here. Everyone who fears the Lord, right? He gives it there clearly. Blessing is directly tied to our fear of God. And it's for all who fear the Lord. The next question then is, well, what does that mean? How do I fear the Lord? What does that look like in my life? How do I get there? The word might bring to mind, you know, someone cowering off in the corner in terror, afraid of what's going to happen to them. And, and that is indeed the fear that people will experience if they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It will be terror. But it's not the kind of fear that God wants from His children. No, it's a different kind of fear. Because terror would drive us away from God, right? But God desires that we be drawn near to Him. This fear that He speaks of is spoken of much in the Scriptures. I just want to read a few passages to you. And I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy 10. We'll read a few verses there. But listen to the words that are included along with this idea of fear. Listen to the synonyms and the other things that surround this idea of fearing God and what that means. Deuteronomy 10. We'll look in verse 12. Deuteronomy speaks a lot of fear of the Lord and love for God. 
interestingly enough. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Go down to verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and cling to Him. And you shall swear by His name. He is your praise and He is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Psalm 130 verse 4 says, But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Psalm 112 1 says, Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. Psalm 115.11 says, You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Psalm 147.11, The Lord favors those who fear Him, those who wait for His loving kindness. And Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Did you hear all those relational terms in those passages? Did you see the idea of fear of God is described as, as trust in God, as love for God, as serving God, worshiping Him? being forgiven, giving Him glory, hating evil, clinging to Him. God desires in us such a a grateful reverence, a loving honor, a loyal awe that, that we would never treat Him lightly, that we would never dare commit any sin against the One who has sacrificed Himself for us and pardoned us. 19th century theologian Charles Bridges said, The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. An affectionate reverence. I like that. I think that really captures it. It's a good summation of of what the fear of God is for his child. An affectionate awe, an affectionate reverence. You know, if I were in my house and some man burst through the door with a gun in his hand, he said, give me the keys to your car. Which something like that actually did happen to me one time. I turned around and a guy had a gun at my back and... I did as Chris Kadimian would tell us to do, and I tried to run. But I listened to him. I fell on my face because he told me, get on the floor, so I did so. Very quickly, I might add. Why did I do that? Because I liked the guy? Because I wanted to serve him? No, he scared me so much, I almost wet my pants. No, I did it out of fear. But let's say that my father walked in the room. And he says, Tim, can I, can I borrow the keys to your car? I would gladly do it. I would gladly give him those keys because I love him. I honor him. I respect him. And I'd want to serve him in any way that I could. You know, I fear both men. I fear the man with the gun. I fear my father. But it's a different kind of fear, isn't it? One is terrifying. The other is an a, uh, affectionate reverence. And how much more so for our Heavenly Father, right? The affectionate reverence should be so much greater. Fear of the Lord is a, it's a supreme awe and honor of God that's rooted in love and gratitude. And it's important to understand where that fear begins, right? How does one begin that journey of fearing the Lord in that way? Well, listen to Revelation 14, 6, and 7. This is where the gospel is publicly proclaimed for the last time before God brings judgment on the earth. Revelation 14.6 says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, listen, this was the eternal gospel. Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. Did you catch the core of the eternal message there? It's embodied in this idea of fearing God. It's, it's to confess your sins. It's to admit to Him that you've rebelled against Him, that you have not served or honored the God who made you, but you have turned against Him. Fearing God be- begins with acknowledging that, with confessing your sin to Him, with going to Him asking for forgiveness. Revelation 14 here talks about the hour of judgment coming, and it will come for those who do not repent and turn to Christ. But God has offered amnesty in the blood of His Son, has He not? He's offered a means of forgiveness. He has offered a way out of that eternal judgment. If we would just be willing to turn from our sins and place our trust in Christ. And that's where the fear of God begins. It begins by acknowledging Christ as Lord. 
and committing your life to Him. And then the fear of God then grows into that affectionate reverence as you're, you're utterly stunned by the fact that in order to save you, in order to provide that forgiveness, God would send His own Son and kill Him on the cross to pay for your sin and for mine. The fear of the Lord, it it describes an ongoing relationship with God. Terms that the Scripture uses for it are to walk by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, to delight in the Lord and in His Word, to walk in His ways and obedience. As we see in Psalm 128 at the end of verse 1, it says, The man who fears the Lord, or everyone who fears the Lord, will walk in His ways. Psalm 119, verse 3 says, God fears, do do no unrighteousness, they walk in His ways. And that's what it looks like. You know, one who claims to have a fear of God, claims to have that affectionate reverence for Him, will live a life of obedience to Him, right? Spurgeon said, if the heart is joined to God, the feet will follow hard after Him. 1 John 2, 4 says, and I'll probably say this every time I'm up here, But he says, the one who says, I've come to know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word and in the love of God, term of relationship, has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Same term used in Psalm 128.1. Ephesians 1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. You see, that is how we can most honor and glorify God. That's the greatest way that we can show fear of Him is to imitate Him, is to look like Him, is to emulate His Son. Psalm 128 says that anyone beginning with salvation and continuing on in a walk of obedience and relationship with God, anyone will be richly blessed, will experience that inner joy. I know I began the sermon this morning, talking to you, to, to men specifically. But so far in this psalm in verse 1, he's, he's declared a general blessing to everybody. Everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways, will be blessed. But, but in verse 2, the psalmist shifts his attention for the rest of the poem. He focuses his attention on men. Notice in verse 3, he says, your wife. Verse 4, he says, thus shall the man. The pronouns here in the Hebrew are masculine. The Hebrew can delineate between masculine or feminine nouns and verbs. Here the verbs and the nouns in the psalm are predominantly second masculine singular, meaning they are addressed specifically to men as individuals, future husbands and fathers, present husbands and fathers. This psalm is directly written at this point to us guys. And men, I want you to listen for a moment. The, the poet is zeroing in on you. He's, he's fixed his gaze from the whole crowd and now he's picking you out amongst those that are listening. And he's saying, I want you to consider something for a minute. I want you to think about what the life looks like for a man who fears the Lord. That life is incredibly blessed. And he describes two types of blessings here in the rest of the psalm. The first is a domestic blessing in verses 2 to 4. The second is a durable blessing in verses 5 and 6. Let's look back at verse 2, the domestic blessing. When you shall eat the fruit of your hands, you will be happy, and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And notice in verse 2, what's the first area that the psalmist declares that, that God's blessing would be demonstrated? His work, right? He says there, when you shall eat, but I think the Hebrew more reflects the idea of indeed or, or certainly you shall eat. And that when you do, when you eat the work of your hands, it'll be a good thing. It will be well with you. He's saying that there will be satisfaction in your job, in your work, not a, not a burden. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, right. No, it's true. And note that the man who fears the Lord here is a hardworking man. That word there for fruit, fruit of his hands, the idea behind that word is actually of labor, of toil. In fact, the Net Bible translates this as, you will eat what you work so hard to grow. The idea here isn't, you know, God just dropping in prosperity uh, without any effort on our part. Right? We know that. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if a man will not work, let him not eat. Right? Or Spurgeon also said, though we are in God's hands, we are to be supported by our own hands. He will give us daily bread, but it must be made by our own labor. 
You don't get a pass, guys, on needing to work hard. But God does say that for the man who does fear Him, that work will be a blessing. There will be contentment and inner satisfaction. He says it will be well with you. That's because God, God doesn't seek to make our life a misery, to beat us into some slavish submission, to withhold good, to, to throw out crumbs once in a while. That's not His heart at all. Listen to what He says in Deuteronomy 5.29. Oh, that they had a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments so that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. God desires us to be well. He desires good for us. Fear leads to that good, not to drudgery. And after describing a man's work in that way in verse 2, notice what he does in verse 3. It's almost as if the psalmist says, you know, come here, fellas, I want you to look at something. And he, he grabs hold of a door to a house and he opens that door. And he wants you to look inside to see what is a, a man who fears God, what does his home look like? In verse 3, he first says that his wife is described like a fruitful vine within his house. Some commentators Talk about that that's primarily referring to the blessing of bearing children, but that is indeed a blessing, but that's not the whole of it. I think you need to look at what the Old Testament has to say when it describes a vine, a fruitful vine. Let me read a few verses to you that will, will give you a fuller picture of that. Hosea fourteen seven, the vine is described as beautiful when in blossom. Song of Songs two thirteen says it is sweet smelling. Zechariah three ten says it is a place of rest and comfort. Judges 9.13 says the vine is a source of enjoyment from its wine, its grapes. 1 Kings 4.25 says it is a place of shade. 2 Kings 18.31 says it is a place providing sustenance. You see, the picture of a fruitful vine here is is that of a thriving and and productive and, and joyful woman. One who is a source of peace and blessing and health and enjoyment inside the home. In fact, Song of Solomon compares several times his bride to a vine in very endearing terms. The wife of the God-fearing man is blessed herself, and she's also a source of blessing to everyone in the home and a great joy to her husband. Proverbs 31 and and Titus 4, 2, 4 through 5 describe in a practical way what that looks like. A woman who, who is a fruitful vine, she fears the Lord, she works hard, she manages her household well. She shows grace to all. She's kind to her husband and children. She respects her husband. She's loyal to him. She has his trust. She loves her family. Husbands, let me ask you a question. Would you characterize your wives that way? Do you realize that a healthy vine requires careful attention? A wise vine grower will spend time cultivating his vine, watering and fertilizing and pruning and protecting it from diseases and pests, right? So too does the God-fearing man care for his wife. Men, how are you cultivating your vine? Because I want you to see something here. The God-fearing man of Psalm 128, he experiences the blessings of a fruitful vine within his house because he is one of the primary means to bring about that fruitfulness. You guys know the verses. Ephesians 5, 25, right? Husbands. Husbands what? You got to preach to me too, all right? Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. 1 Peter 3 uh, 7 says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Man, these verses contain the tools for the master vine grower. Ways that you can be a blessing to your wife. And as you fear God, use these tools so that she would be a fruitful vine in your home. Children then are described in verse 3 as these olive plants or olive shoots that, that come forth from your table. The olive tree was a vital part of the ancient Near East culture. It was used for a lot of different things. For food, for lamps, for medicine, perfume, anointing, currency. It's probably one of the most valuable commodities that you could have. And the description here of children coming out as olive plants is one that gives provision, comfort, future prosperity, and security. And notice the location of these plants, these olive plants that are sprouting forth, is from your table. 
Right? That is a central location in the family, right? A place of gathering, a place of provision, of fellowship, of family identity, a place to cultivate unity in the home. And children are seen as these shoots coming out of, of this location of nurturing and care. Dads, how are you doing cultivating those olive shoots? Are they characterized as those in Ephesians 6, 1 and 2 who obey their parents and who honor their father and mother? Men, listen to these texts that are, again, directed specifically to you. Ephesians 6, 4, right? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Psalm 78, verses 5 to 7, says, For he established a testimony in Jacob, that's the word, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. Men, are you leaving the roles of shepherding your wives or your kids, shepherding your kids, excuse me, to your wives or to the church or to someone else? Guys, how involved are you in the spiritual care and nurturing of your kids? Are you in it for the long haul? You know, olive plants can take up to 10 years before they will yield fruit. Children take probably twice as long, Right? We're in, we've got to be in it for the long haul. And so as we look into the God-fearing man's home, we see a picture, a portrait, a Thomas Kincaid painting that has been given to us of a, of a home that depicts it. It's vibrant, it's peaceful, it's loving, it's unified, it's productive. Men, do you desire such a home? Men, do you want a place that is indeed a place of rest, of unity, of joy? Look at verse 4. Here the psalmist again fixes his gaze on men and, and he, he doesn't want us to, to move too quickly away from verse 3. He wants us to stop and to linger there for a minute as he says, Behold, thus certainly indeed shall the man experience blessing who what? Fears the Lord, right? He wants to repeat himself again and say, Men, stop a minute. Take a look at this. Don't move on too quickly. Because this is how God will bless you if you fear Him. You will experience this in your homes. What does the portrait of your home look like? How does it compare to verse 3? Is your wife a fruitful vine or is she shriveling up? Are your children these vibrant, healthy olive shoots coming out from your table or are they weeds? Is your home a place of peace where God is integrally woven into the fabric of your life or is there constant conflict, rebellion, strife, worldliness? Do you want to see change, guys? Think about it. Do you really want to see change? Or do you want to see it even better than what it is now? You first need to recognize something. Your wife isn't the problem. Your children are not the problem. Your circumstances are not the problem either. You are. Draw near to God, guys. Beg Him. Beg Him for that affectionate reverence for Him. Spend consistent time with Him. Learn what it means to fear God, to walk by His Spirit. And then honestly examine whether you are neglecting your wife and your children and what else you could be doing that could be a spiritual guide to them, that could nurture them. I mean, is there anything else more important than that? Maybe you've not had the best role model in your lives. I understand that. But fellas, you, you can't be responsible for your ancestors, but you can make an impact on your descendants. There are plenty of men here who can help you. We've got small groups all during the week for guys. We have fellowship groups that have opportunity. Our website has many materials and resources that can help you. And many other things that are there to assist you. This summer, we're going through, we've been teaching on spiritual leadership for all men, Sunday nights. In the last several weeks, I've hardly seen but 40 guys there. And I've talked to enough of your kids that I know there's more than 40 of us here that need to be there Sunday nights. I'm talking to myself too, guys. Be committed to fearing God. Don't let anything get in the way of that. If you want to see revival in your homes, men, it starts with you. It starts with you having an ongoing and vibrant relationship with God. And some of you guys, I think, are distracted. You've lost sight of your priorities. You're in danger of losing your families. And I'm not talking just physically here, but spiritually. I mean, when's the last time you sat down with your wife or your kids and said, how are you doing with the Lord? When's the last time that you prayed with them? And I don't just mean at the dinner table. When is the last time that you spent time with them in the Word? 
What are their joys and struggles? How's your wife doing? Are you praying with and for them? Are you leading them in those times in the Word? Some of you out there may be stepfathers. I know that's a difficult situation. You may be unsure of your role, but listen to me. Any child in your home, guys, is your responsibility to shepherd whether they are your own flesh and blood, whether they are a stepchild, a foster child, an abandoned child, an adopted child, they require, they need, they need you to be a godly example to them. They need you to instruct them in the Word. They need you to be a spiritual shepherd to them. And lest any of you guys forget, Jesus Christ was raised by a stepfather. Single men, are you taking this psalm to heart? This needs to be your food, guys. This needs to be something you meditate on and think about and seek ways to apply. You need to preach it to yourself often. Because if you desire to have the type of family that God talks about here in this psalm, you need to be a man who above all things has has this fear of God, that affectionate reverence for Him. How are you cultivating that in your life now? Ditch any distraction or sin that's keeping you from it, guys. Wives, I want to appeal to you for a minute too. You know, being a godly shepherd is not easy. Especially after sermons like this one. You know, Satan is busy. He is after us. He wants to take us out. Ladies, find some ways to be an encouragement to your husband. Pray consistently for them and and don't nag them. Don't pressure them. Ask God to bring other godly men into their lives that can be an influence to them look for ways to to show respect to them and i know for some of you it may be difficult but first peter 3 calls you to have a gentle and quiet spirit to be submissive to your husbands and believe it or not that is a primary way in which you will motivate and encourage them in this task to be godly shepherds god's word is true ladies you need to trust it Pray for them. Don't give up. That is an amazing weapon that you have. Perhaps, ladies, your husband isn't saved, or perhaps you're a single mother. Don't self-short the impact that you can have on your kids. You remember Timothy? His mother Eunice was married to an unsaved Gentile. And yet we read in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 how through the instruction of the word that he received from childhood, through his mom, he came to know the Lord. You can have a tremendous impact on your kids. Instruct them in the Word. Get them plugged in here at church so they can be around more godly men. And single moms, just be reminded that God has special care upon the fatherless. Single gals, if you have a desire to have a home like the one described here in Psalm 128, and I'm pretty sure you do, then there's just one thing you need to be looking for. There's one criteria that should tower over every other. One thing that should matter to you above everything else. It doesn't matter what the guy looks like. It doesn't matter his career. It doesn't matter how, how great personality he has. None of those things matter. One selection criteria needs to be above all others. And that is that find a man who fears God. Find a man who loves God. That that's his passion. He may even be short. That's okay. But find that guy. Don't worry about the other stuff. It'll be great for you for about six months. And then the the character of the man, whether or not he truly fears God, that's what's going to be a blessing to you and to your kids. That's what you want. So keep that focus on there. You older saints, there's several of you that I really appreciate here. Just want to encourage you. How are you contributing to help husbands and dads here? What are some ways that you can be doing that? You know, serve as much as you can here so that you can free up these men to spend a little more time with their families. Maybe you have sons yourselves that are raising their own kids. I would call them up today and let them know the psalm you read that you, you think would encourage them. Show it to them. Pray for them. And guys, I, I'm not trying to beat you up, at least not all of you. I know many of you are trying. And I know many of you probably have the feelings that I get. You know, a lot of times when I reflect on my um, last 22 plus years as a husband and 19 plus years as a dad, I I have to be honest with you, I feel regret at times. Because I look back and I see past failures. 
I look at where my kids are today and some of the struggles that they have. I look at situations in my own marriage and some of the difficulties there, and I realize the things that I didn't do when they were younger. And I regret that. It's discouraging. At times, it can feel like a crushing burden, the responsibility to be a godly shepherd in my home. I'm a sinner. And the problem is my wife knows that too. My kids, actually, as well. But you know what, men? This is where I find great encouragement from this psalm because the Lord's simply saying this, guys. Tim, focus just on fearing me. That's all you need to worry about. Cultivate that affectionate reverence for me. And then I will give you the grace to shepherd your family. I hope you see that too in this psalm. God isn't just throwing things at us. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to be this. No, he's saying, you know what? Just focus on me. Fear me. Have an ongoing relationship with me. And I will strengthen you for the task. After the declared blessing of verse 1 and the domestic blessing that he gives in verses 2 to 4, we finally see the durable blessing in verses 5 and 6. I want to take you back again to going up that hill. It's pretty warm. You're coming out of the desert there from Jericho. You're ascending the hill up to Jerusalem. Uh, you've just sung verse 4. And, and then that moment as you're looking at your family and maybe feeling that weight of responsibility to shepherd them again just after hearing verse 3 and just, oh boy, we're not there yet. I want you to look at verse 5. Listen to what the psalmist says. May the Lord bless you, again men, from Zion, so that you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life and see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. The psalmist mentions Zion here, which he does, um, which at different times in the Old Testament does indeed refer to Jerusalem as a whole. That was what it was called when David defeated it early on from the Jebusites. It was called the stronghold of Zion. But it came up to be more often referred to the Temple Mount, particularly in the Psalms, the, the place where God was seen as dwelling, the holy hill, Psalm 15, 1 describes it as. And, and just imagine yourself as you're singing the words to this song and you're ascending up into the hill and, and the, the top of the temple uh, appears to you as a very tall building and you start to see that and reflect on you're going to, to worship God, to celebrate the feast that you're there to attend. And as your gaze is fixed upon the temple, as you think about going there to worship God, that is where this, this encouraging prayer comes. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May He bless you as you go and ascend the hill and go to worship Him and fellowship with other believers. Experience that blessing. That is there you will find help to shepherd your home. It is in the house of worship that you will find encouragement and grace to be a godly shepherd. And then he mentions a few things here in these verses. Jerusalem, your grandchildren, Israel. What connection do you think those statements have in verses 5 and 6 with what he's already said in verses 1 and 4, 1 through 4? I think what he's doing there is he's showing the impact of a godly man and how it extends beyond the four walls of his home. It's kind of like a large stone being thrown into a, a still and quiet pond. We see the ripple effects extending out from where the stone hits the water. So too does the man who fears God create a ripple effect that extends from his home into his community, into his church, into his culture, into his nation. It's a durable blessing. It's a blessing that endures. The reference to Jerusalem here in verse 5, I think it reminds us that we're part of a spiritual community. Not Jerusalem for us per se today, but, but the church. It tells us and reminds us that life is not just about you or even your families. It goes beyond you. You're part of an organism. You're part of a body here at Calvary Bible Church. And as you grow in your relationship with God, as you fear Him, as you have an impact within your home, on your wife, on your children, so too you will be a blessing upon those here at, at Calvary and, and other believers. That fear of God will expand beyond your home into the lives of those around you. And that's why it's so important that you have your families involved here. Don't just come on Sunday, but try to get more involved here. Have your kids involved, your families involved, so that you can be a blessing in so many ways to struggling families here, to others who may need that encouragement. And notice as well in verse 6 that durable blessing alludes also to the effect that you will have on the next generation. 
he says here, you know, may you see your children's children. And I think he's talking more about not just living a long life so that you would see your grandkids, but actually, too, alluding to the impact that you can have on them. It's like, see, look, look at your grandkids. Psalm 103.17 says, But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. You know, it is indeed a, a tremendous joy to see your children walk with the Lord. But what I look forward to even more is to see their kids walking with Christ. Psalm 78, I read earlier, 5-7, through seven, talks about that. Let me read it to you again. It says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, that is His word, which He commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. See the process? You impact your kids, your kids impacting their kids. So that your grandchildren would put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Your faithfulness can extend beyond your own kids into their children. And that ripple effect you can see for generations to come. Psalm 128 closes with the same declaration as that in 125. It then says, peace be upon Israel. And he, he's talking more there, not just peace from conflict, but, but also prosperity, also God's grace, that it would be poured out on their nation. And as I think about our own country, it's not hard to see. We're in great trouble, aren't we? The need of the hour is not lowering the national debt. It's not changing our president. It's not changing Congress. It's not more jobs. The need of the hour in this country, the United States of America, is the gospel. The gospel needs to be proclaimed. And it first starts with you men. You men need to be living it out in your lives, having this ongoing, vibrant, affectionate reverence for God that would extend beyond you to your families, to your community, and eventually to this nation. We don't need more material blessings. We need the blessing of an inner peace and joy that's a right relationship with God, don't we? Do you believe that? Men, do you believe that? I want to hear you. Be a ripple effect, guys. You can do it. Just one guy can affect change. I'm going to talk about Jonathan Edwards in a minute, but it's amazing the impact that that one man had on subsequent generations of this country. You can be just such a man. But before we get to him, I I don't want to give you the impression that this psalm is saying, you know what, life is trouble-free, you're guaranteed no issues, you're going to have a wife, many kids, they're going to be a blessing, it's all coming. You know, Job was a righteous man, was he not? He suffered a lot for a period of time in his life. Jesus, of anyone who was a perfect God-fearer, who was the Son of God. And yet he was not married. He had no kids. He did not live a long life. And he suffered greatly. Psalm 128 is a, a wisdom psalm. It's written in the nature of the Proverbs. It expresses general truisms of life. It says that, generally speaking, a man who fears God will experience the things talked about in this psalm. But that doesn't mean God will not hone and shape that God-fearing man through trial and affliction, through heat. You know, the more you beat a sword, the stronger it becomes. Remember, too, in those times of beating, that true blessing, true happiness and inner peace, it, that comes with the satisfaction of walking with God. That's where blessing comes from. And Paul experienced that, didn't he? In Philippians 4.11, he says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. He learned the secret was not in the circumstances, but in his God. Jesus said himself in Matthew 6.33, you need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. As I mentioned just a minute ago, Jonathan Edwards is, I think, a a modern-day illustration of a man who feared God. You know, he was considered by many to be the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. In the early 1700s, his ministry contributed to the Great Awakening, one of the greatest revivals ever seen in this country. And not only did he have an impact on the church of his day, but he had a ripple effect through many generations after him. Listen to a study that was done about 150 years after his death on the impact that he had on subsequent generations in his family. Over a hundred of his descendants were lawyers, back when that was a good thing. 
That was for Ed and Tom. 65 of them were professors, 30, 13 of them college presidents, 60 authors and editors of 135 books of merit, 60 physicians, one med school dean, 75 army or navy officers, 80 public officials, including three mayors, three governors, three U.S. senators, several congressmen, and a vice president. A hundred of his descendants were pastors, and another hundred became missionaries. Is this not the picture of the blessed impact of a man who fears God? And you know, Jonathan Edwards, for him it began when he was a teenager. When he was between 15 and 20 years old, he sat down and wrote 70 resolutions for his life. 70 things, 70 ways that he wanted to live in a life in fear of God. I'd encourage you to read them. They have much instruction. It's amazing, someone that young. Listen to his 43rd resolution. He said, Resolved never henceforward till I die to act as if I were in any way my own, but to act entirely and altogether God's. Like Edwards, men, you need to get a vision that's bigger than yourself. As I said earlier, you can't be responsible for your ancestors, but you can make an impact on your descendants. Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius said in the late 2nd century, what we do in life echoes in eternity. No, Russell Crowe did not make up that line. Emperor Aurelius actually said that. And, And guys, it's true. What will be your echo? Will it be that you lived a life for pleasure or success or fame, or or money, or that you spent yourself for Jesus, and that heaven is now more populated because of you. You know, Joshua was just such a man. Listen to his life resolution that he shares in Joshua 24, 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me... And my house, preach it, fellas, we will serve the Lord. May this be your resolve, men. And may God's grace, and may you know God's grace, it's sufficient for you to carry out just such a resolve. May the Lord bless you from Zion as you seek to fear Him. Let's pray. Lord, there's much more that I just feel that needs to be said. God, I thank you for this psalm. I I thank you for showing us just how interconnected our walk with you is to our families. Just how much our lives are intertwined with those you've called us to shepherd. God, I pray if there are any men out here, Lord, that, that have been distracted, that have not been committed to shepherding their homes, that you would move in them, bring encouragement, bring exhortation, conviction, motivation, whatever is needed, God, so that they would have an impact in their homes and in our church. Lord, I pray for women here, Lord, that you would encourage and strengthen them, Lord, especially those that may have husbands that are struggling in this area or maybe do not have husbands at all. May you come alongside them and and bring them comfort and grace. God, we... We just want to see you use this church. We want to be blessed, Lord. We want to have an inner joy, peace, comfort, and satisfaction in you. We want our children to experience that. We want those that we know, our neighbors and our extended family, to experience that. Use us, God, we pray. I pray. I ask you would pour your grace upon us. Thank you for your Son in whom we have life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.